Exodus chapter 21. A little bit back and forth on Sunday, we're still stuck in chapter 20. We're going to be there this coming Sunday. And, and then when I get back from vacation, I'm going to be taking a couple of weeks off here. Um, I'll be there Sunday morning, and then I'm going to take a couple, two and a half weeks uh, just to be with my family and, and get away for a little time of rest. And Jake is going to take up the mantle on Sunday morning, and Les is going to be here on Wednesday night to teach you. Please don't miss that. Get some fresh perspective as, as God speaks through his his servants to you. But tonight, we are not in chapter 20. We are, we've already gone ahead in our midweek into chapter 21, a little bit into chapter 21, actually, a ways into it. We'll pick up in verse 12 in just a moment. I want to begin by framing tonight's study, if I may. And I want to say that the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, as it's called, the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments are like a majestic forest. You, know, you see it from the outside, you look and you say, wow, that's beautiful, it's, it, it's huge, it's expansive, it's green and it's reaching to the sky, a majestic forest of which the many rules and regulations and ordinances of Torah are the trees. You don't want to miss the forest for the trees, but Without the trees, you ain't got no forest. And we're about to now get into the forest, or as I'm framing, as I'm calling this teaching, into the woods. We're not gonna step back, as we're doing on Sunday, we're looking at the forest in the Ten Commandments. Now we're getting into the woods. We're gonna look at the trees. Think about if you were with a, a guide in a national park somewhere, and on the outskirts of the forest, he gives you all the information about the forest itself, but then you walk in and he begins to point out different types of trees and what they mean and how they stand and how they impact the overall forest. And that's really what happens as we now get into the book of the covenant. And we see the individual implications and, and, and rules and regulations and ordinances of God that you have to have these if you're gonna have a forest at all. Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter five, and that's skipping ahead 38 years, Moses gathers all the people for the book of Deuteronomy. That's when that takes place. And in chapter five, verse one, he summons all Israel. The Bible says Moses said to them, hear, O Israel, the statutes and the ordinances which I am speaking today in your hearing, that you may learn them. And the NASB says, and observe them carefully. Literally in the Hebrew, it's hear, O Israel, the statutes and ordinances, that you may learn them and keep them and do them. Moses uses four Hebrew verbs. Hear, learn, keep, do. And that's what this is about tonight. That's why we gather and open his word together, that we might hear his word, learn his word, keep his word, and do it. A.J. Mottier said, obedience is impossible without commands to obey. God calls us to obey, therefore there must be something to obey, right? He says, and broad principles like the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, require thoughtful application to the actualities of daily life. Hence the need for the teaching contained in Exodus 20, verses 22, through chapter 23, verse 19, the book of the covenant, as the Bible calls Torah, or this section of Torah. So last week, we started into the woods. 
just as far as the Lord's compassionate degrees regarding altar simplicity, how to build an altar, what it should look like, keep it simple, and then covering indentured servants, that is protection for those who are in a position of servitude, whether by poverty or debt, or they ended up serving in within the people of Israel. It's not slavery. And as I said last week, the Lord never condones slavery. You'll see that tonight in something that he says is an absolute. But the idea of indentured servants being protected and keeping the altar uh, simple, now we're gonna continue on into the forest, deeper into the woods with the next set of ordinances in which God now is gonna cultivate justice. But he begins by correcting something that had been going on a long time, not only in Israel, in, in culture, in Middle Eastern culture. In fact, it's something that still continues in some sections of the Middle East to this day. Look at chapter 21, Exodus 21, verse 12. The Lord says, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. Capital punishment. Capital punishment. And God is very clear about this. If you kill someone, your life is forfeit. Capital punishment has long been a source of debate, not only in American politics, but in the church. Do we have the right to take a life if that person took a life themselves? And just speaking very plainly tonight, as far back as Noah and the flood, God decreed capital punishment for premeditated murder, period. The reason why I mentioned Noah, Genesis chapter nine, verse six, listen to this. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed for in the image of God, he made man, capital punishment. That's pre-law. In fact, the Noahic covenant, as we studied back in Genesis 9, really is applicable to all mankind and has never ceased, is still in play. Yeah, well, but things are different now. Yeah, you're right. We're, we're under what you might call the New Covenant or New Testament teaching, right? Well, Paul teaches in, Ro in Romans 13 that we are to obey the governing authorities and in that teaching says that it is the sword of the law that you can be fearful of and he's referring to in that passage, capital punishment. So as far as Paul was concerned, as far as Moses is concerned, as far as Noah was concerned, really the Lord speaking through all three of these men, he makes it clear that if a man takes another man's life, his life is forfeit, period. Why? Life is precious to God. Life matters. If someone takes the life of another person, that person's life on earth must be given up. You need to understand in the Jewish mindset, the Jewish comprehension of these things, that when it comes to murder, and I'm talking about premeditated murder, that what's happened is the person who murders another person has not just murdered one, but in Jewish thinking has murdered every generation that would have come from that one thousands upon thousands who would have existed, who now will not exist because of the murder of the one. Life is precious to God. And so what happens when someone commits such a murder is they are then sent to, to the Father for justice. You hand them over to God to deal with them. Verse 13 continues, but if he did not lie in wait for him, that is not premeditated, and God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint you a place to which he may flee. So manslaughter is the idea there. 
accidental, unintentional death. And what's interesting, he says, but God let him fall into his hand. You might read that and go, what, what does that mean? It's very simple that divine, the divine truth here is that all life is in his hands. It's not in our hands, it's in his hands. And so God is the one who oversees all life. And if someone dies at the hands of another, but, but the other didn't intend it, well, that's, that's not the person's unintentional fault. That's not, if it's not premeditated murder, it's accidental. Well, now it's, that's in God's hands and, and he will take care of the person who died. See, he's, he's so far beyond this. We, we get, <laughs> this will sound funny to you, but we get hung up on life and death. <laughs> We get all stressed out about it. Well, God is beyond that. And God created us for an existence beyond death, beyond this temporal life. And so he sees it very differently than we do. If a person dies and it's accidental, then the person who committed the accidental uh, murder or killing, if you will, is not responsible for that. that. That's the Lord will take care of that. The Lord will be responsible for that person, but not the one who committed manslaughter. Now, here's the Middle Eastern practice that had gone on so long unchecked. It's the practice of the Goel Hadam, that is the blood avenger, or the avenger of blood. The Goel Hadam. So the practice was if somebody accidentally or inadvertently caused injury or harm or death, the blood avenger of that family from the affected family could then come after them for retribution. Whatever the situation was, you caused him to lose an arm, the blood avenger could come after you and take your arm. <laughs> if you accidentally caused a death, the blood avenger of that family could come and rightfully kill you. And that was practiced, and again, still is in some places, all over the Middle East, in all culture. You kill someone, you're dead. And the one to kill you is a member of the family of the person you killed. The Goel Hadam comes after you. Not in God's administration. Now for the first time, it stops. As God says again, I will appoint you a place to which he may flee. This is a preview of what God's gonna talk about later on. So we're not gonna spend much time on it tonight, but it is the idea of cities of refuge. Sanctuary cities, but not sanctuary cities to which you can hide out from the law when you are breaking the law, as in America today. Sanctuary cities at that time, cities of refuge, were for people involved in manslaughter. They could flee to that city for protection until they could have a fair trial, protection against the Goel Hadam, the blood avenger. And they would be protected in that city until the fair trial and or until the death of the high priest. Why that? Well, we'll talk about that another time. Numbers chapter 35 discusses these cities of refuge. There would be six in Israel. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter nine, we'll discuss them and set them up again. And then finally, we'll see them at play in Joshua chapter 20. Lord willing and the saints don't rise when we get there. Verse 14, in this same vein, so we're talking about life for life. We're talking about not in the case of manslaughter, that there is sanctuary a man could run to. And then verse 14, if, however, a man acts presumptuously toward his neighbor so as to kill him craftily, so first-degree murder, intentionally, 
You are to take him even from my altar that he may die. Underscore, there is no protection for someone who intentionally commits murder, who premeditates the act. And the Lord makes it clear, even the altar provided no protection for the killer. In other words, you couldn't hide in or behind the church. You couldn't flee to that place. By the way, the church can never save you. Only Jesus can do that. Your, your affiliation, your association to a denomination or, or a, a lineage that goes back years in a particular church, Jesus is not gonna be asking what church you attended. See, he knows. The Lord adds daily to his church those who are being saved. He knows his church. And so your church cannot save you, only Jesus. In the same way, it's not the altar that could save. It was the sacrifice on the altar who saves. And I say who because the sacrifice on the altar is Jesus. So again, it's back to him and it's knowing him. But this, this altar hiding plays out. We actually will see this play out in scripture later on a couple of times during the transfer of power from David to Solomon. A couple of intriguing stories that take place there. Uh, first of all, the treasonous Adonijah. David's son Adonijah, who decides he wants to take the throne, even though he hasn't been handed the throne, at the time where David's going to hand it to Solomon, but Adonijah claims it. And then it gets back to David that Adonijah claimed it. He said, no, it's not for you. And, and Adonijah runs to the altar in the temple, he, it grabs, or, or the altar at the, at the tabernacle at the time, grabs onto the horns of the altar and hangs on and says, you don't take me, you know, protection sanctuary. He's going to be taken from the altar and given a second chance. And then he'll blow it and he's going to be killed. And that's Adonijah. First Kings 1 verses 50 and 51 tells part of that story. Then there's the, also the murderous Joab who had murdered prior to this, and David on his deathbed tells Solomon, you need to take care of Joab. He needs to pay for his crimes. Joab finds out in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 28 through 32, he runs to the tabernacle. He hightails it right to the altar. He grabs onto the horns of the altar, flees to that place for sanctuary, and they drag him from that place, and he ends up dead. Capital punishment. Even the horns of the altar cannot protect you. And there's a principle here. And that principle is very simply that atonement, atonement could not erase accountability. It could cover it for a time. Atonement covered sin and the accountability of sin. There was a, a covering until full payment could be made. But atonement could not erase accountability. The life debt must be paid. If you murder someone, you yourself must give up your life. The old covenant sacrifices of atonement at best were anticipatory of the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ paid in full once and for all his life for yours. His life for mine. Hebrews chapter 10, verse eight says, after saying above sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. So he, that is Jesus, takes away the first in order to establish the second. That's the new covenant. By this will, 
We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Once and for all. Well, wait a minute. Does that mean that he sets the murderer free? Eternally, yes, if the murderer confesses, if the murderer repents, if the murderer gives, puts faith in Jesus, yes, even the murderer is set free eternally. Immediately, no. There's still accountability. There's still capital punishment. There's still the follow-through for those decisions made. And so with capital punishment, the Lord said, this is not me, this is not my opinion, this is not my politic one way or the other. It's the Lord's decree. And so I'm gonna accept it as from the Lord that he declared, you send the first degree murderer to me, I will deal with them. And that's the deal. There is no higher authority on capital punishment than the giver of life himself. And he says in the case of premeditated murder, that is the punishment un without exception. But Jesus goes deeper into the woods. Matthew chapter five, verse 21. Turn over to Matthew chapter five. You might wanna keep a finger there because I'm gonna come back there again in a few minutes. In Matthew five, Jesus addresses many of the commandments, many of the things that you have heard it said, such and such, but I say to you, Jesus says. So Matthew chapter five, along with Exodus 20 through 23, are really good to look at back and forth together. Matthew chapter five, verse 21, says, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Or in the case of the law, is if someone commits premeditated murder, of course, capital punishment. But in this case, if a murder happens, you don't know if it was premeditated or not, they're liable to the court. Jesus says, but I say to you, that everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Oh, man, I'm done. Actually, I'm undone. That's all it takes. Angry, I've been angry with my brother many times, and I love my brother, but I've been angry. He says, whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. That is intense. And that is the deeper heart of the law. It's not just about a human life. It's about more than that. It's about the human heart. And so note what Jesus says. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and first go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and present your offering. In other words, don't hide behind the altar. See, where Jesus totally grabs hold of me here is he says, look, don't go showing up at church, skulking around behind pretentious self-sacrifice. Oh, I'm here worshiping the Lord. I know I got this relationship issue here, but it's no big thing because I am a righteous dude. I'm in praise and worship. He's not. He's not even going to church right now. But I'm here. Self-righteousness? Jesus says, no. It's no different than running to the altar and grabbing onto the horns and thinking you're protected against the truth. The truth is you got a problem with your brother 
Or as Jesus really puts it, he has a problem with you. What do we say to that in our culture? Well, if he has a problem with me, he's gonna have to fix it. Not my problem, it's his problem. Jesus says, if you know he has a problem with you, you go and you reconcile. You make it right. Seek reconciliation? Yes, even if I'm not at fault, absolutely. Remembering what Jesus said about the law. Matthew 22, 38, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. It's the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And what happens as we go even deeper into the wood than the trees on the outskirts, as in the ordinances of the, and the rules of the law of God, we find behind them, deep in that place, that love is at the heart of the law. And we began to open that up on Sunday morning. Maybe you recall, if you were with us, if you, if you tuned in or you were here out on the hillside, that we began to talk about love is at the heart of the law. If you read the law any other way, you will miss the intent. If you read the law without the love of God and without the love intent of the God who is love, you're not gonna comprehend the law. It just becomes a, a book of black and white, white rules and, and authority, and we wanna rebel against that stuff. But when you read it with the love of God, the compassion of God, the grace of God, it becomes a completely different thing. So love is at the heart of the law. God loves his people. God loves you, loves me. He loves his creation. And when one in his creation kills another in his creation, it stops there. And the Lord says, you send the killer to me. All right, so continuing on, verse 15 back in Exodus 21. Keep that finger in Matthew 5. We'll be back there in a few minutes. If Let's see, where are we? Verse 15. Oh, he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. That verse alone kept me from ever taking a swing at my dad when I was a kid. <laughs> Actually, you know what I did one time? I think I shared this years ago. That it was just after my grandmother had died, my freshman year of high school, and I was all upset about that and didn't emotionally really know how to deal with it and how to handle it, and, and I'll never forget that night. My dad comes up to my room, and I have my music blasting. I'm supposed to be doing homework, and he's like, I want you to turn the music off and get on your homework. And I'm like, I can do my homework better with the music. You know, I think it was Kiss was playing or something stupid like that. And, and he's like, no, I want the music off. And we had this heated argument, and all of a sudden, I took a swing. Yeah. Yeah, and my dad caught my fist with his big hand and stopped me cold and I just broke. <laughs> what a scene, wow. Why did I even share that? It's a little personal. <laughs> We're getting into a part now of the law, you know, where you don't wanna just, you don't wanna miss the trees in the forest. Because God said very clearly in the fifth commandment that you shall Exodus 20, verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. And so expanding on that for our further, what does that mean? What's he talking about? He, he goes right to it. He who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. And note the context of this is strikes as in unto death. That is he who kills father or mother. So even if murder happens in the same family, it's still capital punishment. It's no different. 
he shall surely be put to death. It's serious business. He says in verse 16, and we're gonna take it aside here, he says, he who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. Verse 16 of chapter 21 is God's answer to slavery. That is how God feels about slavery. The indentured servitude of the previous laws that he gave in the early part of chapter 21 is again, not slavery as we called it. He's talking about human trafficking in verse 16. That's what America did, that's what Britain did, that's what other countries did with the slave trade that was human trafficking, forcing people out of their life and bringing them to a new life and for that God declared capital punishment. So the Bible does not support slavery, my friends. God never supports taking someone's life from them and selling them off. And so in this verse on kidnapping, this is what we're dealing here with slavery and human trafficking. But then he goes back in verse 17 to the family. He says, he who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. And curses there can also be taken, he who puts father or mother under a curse. So it's not just shouting an expletive at mom or dad, though you shouldn't. It's about seeking harm to them. And this becomes such serious business. Honor your father and mother, the fifth commandment. Remember I said on Sunday, it's the hinge commandment, the fifth one. The first four are directly about God. And then the, the last six, the last five are directly about our relationship with each other. The one right in the middle is honor your father and mother because it has implications both directions, both to loving God and to loving my neighbor as myself. And it's vital to understand that because God established parental authority as the first perspective of his higher authority in our lives. That the, the baby is born, becomes a toddler, begins to grow up and, and is set under mom and dad and begins to then learn about God. Not that the parents are God, they're not, but they are the authority that until the child is old enough to begin to comprehend God, they comprehend what authority means, what it means to be obedient, what it means to be disciplined. And that all comes through the parental relationship. And notice in, back in chapter 20, verse 12, where it says, honor your father and mother, the word honor there is kabed from the word kabod, which is glory, esteem, highly esteem our father and mother. But here in verse 17, he who curses father or mother, the word curse is makalel, which is the opposite. In fact, it's the Hebrew antonym to kabod, to honor or glory. So honor your father and mother. He who curses, he who does the exact opposite of honor, he who treats father or mother with contempt shall surely be put to death. Capital punishment, again, because it is such a serious thing. God, let me put it this way, is deadly serious about the respect of parents because our parental relationship, he knows this, will have a potent effect on our relationship with Father God. That's a tough one because we have not managed family very well. Fathers, mothers, the, the, the mishandling of these things have, have left many of us to come to God and to try to figure him out and understand him without the picture of a loving, compassionate, gracious, disciplinary 
Father. You gotta find God, and God is faithful. So if you come out of that kind of broken situation and you didn't have the example, or maybe you had a, a father and mother your whole life, but they were distant or not caring, and, and you're like, I don't, I don't know how to get to God. God will do it. He, he is sufficient to get you there. In the same way that we mess up marriage, and yet, as we talked about a lot on Sunday, that marriage is a picture of the relationship God wants to have with us, Jesus wants to have with us, that bride and groom, loving, compassionate, deep relationship. It's the same thing with parenting. God uses it as a picture. It's set up to be, to establish us in understanding authority and obedience. And then as we come into a relationship with him, we get it. And my, my father, my dad here on earth, far from God, let me, let me phrase that differently. He's close to God personally, but he's not God. He's not a perfect man, but he's a good man. And he's been faithful all my life. And I have had the picture of a father who I respect. And because of that, it made it easier for me to transfer respect and obedience to God. And that's why it's so important to him that we learn to honor our father and our mother that we would learn then that same relationship in a deeper way with God the Father himself. Well, verse 18, he continues on, says, if men have a quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and he does not die but remains in bed, I'm pretty sure that happened with me and my brother when we were growing up. Verse 19, if he gets up and walks around outside on his staff and then he, then he who struck him shall go unpunished. So if he's okay, then no punishment, but note this, I love it. He shall only pay for his loss of time and shall take care of him until he is completely healed. So now he has become your responsibility. And God's establishing these, these interactions. And these, if the worst case scenario happens, here's what you do. If a man strikes his male or female slave with a rod and he dies at his hand, he shall be punished. Okay, wait a minute, what? He shall be punished if, however, he survives a day or two, no vengeance shall be taken, for he's his property. Now, that sounds like slavery, doesn't it? Understand again, God is talking about worst-case scenario here. So if you have an indentured servant working for a master and the master strikes the servant and knocks him out cold, and let's say he doesn't, you know, he... he, he he doesn't die, he survives, he's okay. No vengeance shall be taken for he's his property. But you gotta understand what the vengeance is that's being talked about here. In verse 20, it says, if he strikes a slave with a rod and dies at his hand, he shall be punished. But the word punished in verse 20 is he shall suffer vengeance. What kind of vengeance? The goel, what is it? What's, what's the word again? You guys got that? The, the Goel Hadam. That is the blood avenger. So you've got an indentured servant who's working for you and you strike them and kill them. Guess what you're under? The Goel Hadam. The blood avenger now can come after you. God's not saying, hey, listen, uh, you know, for all you slave owners who are striking your slaves. No, he's not. He's saying, don't go there because if you go there, your life is forfeit. If you strike down, if you kill a slave, even accidentally, the blood avenger can come for you. You don't wanna mess with that. He's establishing boundaries, trees as it were in the forest. 
In verse 22, if men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him and he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty, penalty life for life. Don't miss that. Two men are struggling and the woman standing nearby, she's pregnant, she gets struck and the baby dies. God says life for life. Eye for eye, verse 24, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now some might say, well, that's just like the code of Hammurabi. You know what? It's different because God is encasing this whole thing in the comprehension of his love and in the standards that come from him. Just because somewhere else in the world picks up on a similar standard doesn't mean the standard itself is not good. But God is laying some things out here that are vital to comprehend. He says, if this takes place, the context, note this, the context of eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And we've, we've heard this all kind of spoken out there. You know, the kind of common phrases, an eye for an eye. And people say, see, that's God. He's just, you know, it's brutal. Listen. The context of these familiar phrases is respect of human life. And specifically, the last thing he says regards a premature birth or miscarriage of a baby. So what does that tell you? What does that say regarding abortion? Does God consider the baby in the womb to be life? Clearly, clearly. If two men are fighting and one strikes a woman who's pregnant standing nearby and she loses the baby, guess what he says? Life for life, because the child is a life. Psalm 139, 13 says, for you have formed my inward parts. You wove me together in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. The Bible is absolutely clear. The child in the womb is life. And God doesn't put any beginning or start time on that except conception itself. That this is life in the womb that we're talking about. But again, Jesus goes deeper into the woods. Matthew chapter five again, look at verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you. Do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven for he causes his son to rise on evil and good and sends rain on righteous and unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, and let me just make it real simple for you, Jesus says, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Done. <laughs> so that's easy, right? Listen. <laughs> 
Through Moses, God regulated human behavior. That's what the ordinances are about. In Christ, God actuated godly behavior. How could Jesus say to you, to me, be perfect because your heavenly Father is perfect? Because that's exactly what he's doing in you right now. He is making you perfect. And you will be perfect. He will perfect you until the day of Christ Jesus. And so this is underway in us. Whereas we have the regulations, the people couldn't keep the regulations, couldn't stand the regulations. The trees in the forest were way too tall to climb. But now Jesus comes along and he begins the process in us where this actual perfection is taking place. That's just mind-blowing. Back in Exodus chapter 21, Pick up in verse 26. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female slave and destroys it, he shall let him go free on account of his eye. And if he knocks out a tooth of his male or female slave, what are these people doing anyway? With their poor servants. He shall let him go free on account of his tooth. And then he says, if an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall surely be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall go unpunished. Not your fault if your ox kills somebody else. If, however, an ox was previously in the habit of goring <laughs> and its owner has been warned, yet he does not confine it and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. Why? because you knew, because you could have prevented the goring that has been taking place. If a ransom is demanded of him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is demanded of him. So he doesn't have to die. If the person or the family of the person who's gored by the ox decides, no, we're not gonna kill him, but we are gonna demand a ransom, then he's gotta pay up. Verse 31, whether it gores a son or a daughter, it shall be done to him according to the same rule. God is setting standards. Worst case scenario, but standards nonetheless. If the ox gores a male or female slave, the owner shall give his or her master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. Now this is also, this is still talking about the first goring. Okay, so if you go back up to the top, at the second goring, the person's life is forfeit. But this is talking about that actual, you have this ox and it accidentally gores a male or female slave, which would happen if the, if the servant was out working, you know, in the fields or working for the master and this ox comes along and takes him out. You should pay 30 shekels of silver and the ox be stoned. Verse 33, if a man opens a pit or digs a pit and does not cover it over, and an ox or donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restitution. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead animal shall become his. So you break it, you buy it. Verse 35, if one man's ox hurts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and divide its price equally, and also they shall divide the dead ox. Or if it is known that the ox has was previously in the habit of goring, yet its owner has not confined it, he shall surely pay ox for ox and the dead animal shall become his. Now that may seem a little obscure because we don't deal with oxen quite so much here on the uh, you know, north end of Whidbey Island. 
But let me ask you this question. Is there a biblical example of a bondservant who was gored for 30 shekels of silver? Matthew 26, 14. Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. You're comparing Jesus to an ox? Yeah, comparing Jesus to a sacrifice. Early in the law, God already decreed this precise, interesting, this precise redemption price for a servant who would be gored or we might say pierced through for 30 shekels of silver, which was the price paid to Judas. Now, chapter 22, continuing on, goes from personal injury to property rights. Are you with me? These laws, again, they are about practicing and maintaining love through personal responsibility in relationships, that I really am responsible to those around me. To brothers and sisters and family and neighbors, I, I have a responsibility in this world. And that idea is fast fading away with the rapid spread, or we might say with Jesus, the increase of lawlessness. Chapter 22, verse one says, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it, or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. Personal responsibility over lost property. If, note this, interesting, if the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. But if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. He shall surely make restitution. If he owns nothing, then he'll, he shall be sold for his theft. Now he enters indentured servitude. So indentured servitude was sometimes a punishment for crimes committed. If what he stole is actually found alive in his possession, whether an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. The Lord, again, is here specifying the commandments. He's pointing out the various trees of the forest. And he's already specified, he's already regulated commandment number one, no other gods before me. He's regulated commandment number five, honor your father and mother. Uh, commandment number six, you shall not murder. So he's given parameters for all of these. And now commandment number eight, you shall not steal. He gets into what happens there. Now it seems clear enough, you shall not steal. But the heart is more deceitful than all else, right? And so God has to be more specific, even with theft. What's amazing to me is the parenthetical verses in the midst of this related to the thief and these deal actually with the life of the thief. Listen to them again. If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. But if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness, guiltiness on his account. Account. This is if the thief dies in the process of thieving. And God specifies what's to happen here. And if you just read it, take a cursory glance, it's like, I, okay, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It does if you understand the language. Breaking in is literally while tunneling. If the thief, uh, if the thief is caught while tunneling and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. 
That is, the homeowner is not guilty of murder if the thief is tunneling and he catches him and kills him. Um, so what does that mean? Breaking in or tunneling in, the implication here is at dark or at night. And in the dark of night, the homeowner doesn't know what's going on and cannot be held accountable for killing the thief that comes in in the dark of night. And the contrast to that is, but if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness. That is, in broad daylight. If a man is caught in broad daylight thieving in someone's house and you can see what's going on and, and, and you're very clear on it, then you do not have the right to take his life. Then you are responsible if you kill him in the process of, of catching him at thieving. Let me let Kyle and Delich put this specifically for you. The power and intention of a nightly thief are both uncertain. In the daylight, the, thief, the life of the thief was to be spared so that he could be punished for his crime and what was stolen could be restored. So what the Lord is, is declaring here and, and laying out for us is there is no excuse <laughs> to kill a thief in broad daylight. Do you know what this is? Amazing grace. <laughs> the thief has a certain degree of, I, I don't know about you, but if I was a thief, I would, I would work during the day. I would work during the day. That's what I would do. <laughs> Let me be serious. Amazing grace that God places value even on the life of the thief. Why? For discipline's sake. Keep him alive. He needs some discipline. Also for the opportunity of repentance, you catch him, you keep him alive so that he can repent. And you know, we're gonna see that. We see a thief repent, don't we? Luke 23, 42, he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. Amazing how the Lord continues to reach out a hand for restitution, for reconciliation, to offer grace even to the thief? Why? So that we might learn to love our neighbor as ourself because you know, at the heart of the thief is a human being. Doesn't make the thieving okay. And if there is a death that occurs at night, well, so be it, you can't blame the homeowner in the dark. But in the daylight, don't kill him. Catch him if you can but don't take him out. By the way, in this whole section, you're gonna keep seeing this word over and over and over, and the word is restitution. Nine times in the book of the covenant, we read the word restitution, and it is yeshalim. Yeshalim, which translates restore peace. I was sharing with staff today, and it's funny to me because when I hear the word restitution, I think of Sally shaking Linus, and it's the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown, because he has just cheated her out of tricks and treats. And she's really upset that he made her stay out in the pumpkin patch, and she missed all the fun and all the parties, so she shakes him, and she says, you owe me restitution. And I remember that from a small child growing up. I've seen that so many times, and so I thought, wow, restitution. Boy, he really owes her big. And that's what we think of when we think restitution. You owe me. Make payment. But the Hebrew word for restitution indicates the restoration of peace in a relationship. It's to you and to me, 
in thinking about loving our neighbor, it's doing what I need to do to restore peace so that my neighbor doesn't have something against me, so that there's not a problem between us. It's the love your neighbor principle. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, and if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. How do you be at peace? Restitution. You make restitution. You do what you can do to make it right and to restore peace in relationship between you and another person. Well, verse five of chapter 22, continuing, if a man lets a field or vineyard be grazed bare and lets his animal loose so that it grazes in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. If a fire breaks out and spreads to thorn bushes so that the stacked grain or the standing grain of the field itself is consumed, he who started the fire shall surely make restitution. That is, restore peace. If a man gives his neighbor money or goods to keep for him and it is stolen from the man's house, if the thief is caught, he shall pay double. He shall make restitution. Hang on just a second. I gotta see if I missed something. Did I? Nope, not yet. Okay, good. There's something I want to tell you, but I just want to make sure I didn't miss it. Sometimes that happens when you're teaching. <laughs> All right, what verse was I on, Jake? Pop, pop question. Verse six? Okay, so fire breaks out. Yeah, if it starts a fire, he who started the fire makes restitution. Verse seven. If a man gives his neighbor money or goods to keep and it is stolen from the man's house, if the thief is caught, he shall pay double. If the thief is not caught, then the owner of the house shall appear before the judges to determine whether he laid his hands on his neighbor's property. <laughs> In other words, maybe he's the thief. For every breach of trust, whether it's for an ox, for donkey, for sheep, for clothing, for any lost thing about which one, sa about which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before the judges and he who the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. If you cause someone's loss, you don't just replace it, you double it. This is restoring peace. This is going above and beyond. So that's what God's law does. It doesn't just say this for that. It says, go beyond that. Pay back double for what was lost. Verse 10. If a man gives his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep for him, and it dies or is hurt or is driven away while no one's looking, an oath before the Lord shall be made by the two of them that he has not laid his hands on his neighbor's property, and its owner shall accept it, and he shall not make restitution. I didn't know. I'm so sorry. Okay, before the Lord, we swear that, and we're square. We're good. It's okay. But if it is actually stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. But if it is all torn to pieces, let him bring it as evidence. <laughs> he shall not make restitution for what has been torn to pieces. Again, not his fault. Verse 14, if a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it is injured or dies while his owner is not with it, he shall make full restitution. Verse 15, if its owner is with it, he shall not make restitution. If it is hired, it came for its hire. So what God's doing through all of this is, again, restoring peace, restoring peace. Do this to make it right so that there can be peace between you and a brother, a neighbor, a friend. 
Don't let objects or, or animals or, or things that you own, don't let that stuff get in the way of what's the higher value to God, which is always relationship. Relationship outweighs everything in God's economy, everything. My love for God, my love for my neighbor as myself is tantamount, it's above everything else. Nothing else compares. So whatever else loss there may be between us, man, just double it. Make it better, make it right because the relationship is the thing that matters most. And by the way, the grace of God never decreases the desire to make restitution when we have wronged a brother or a sister. It increases it. That is to say, the more I comprehend the grace of God, the more I desire to make restitution, to restore peace. The further down the road I get in comprehending and understanding, by revelation, God's grace, the more it is easy to make restitution because, man, think about what God did for me. And a perfect example of this, this is where I was afraid I had missed it, but I didn't, so here we are. There's a little man in town. Jesus came to his home, a wee little man, was he? A tax man named Zacchaeus. Remember, Jesus is coming through town and Zacchaeus, funny guy, climbs a tree just so he can see Jesus and Jesus looks up and goes, hey, Zacchaeus, <laughs> what, me? Yeah, Lord, come on down, let's have lunch. And they go to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus has all his friends around. He, remember, he's a tax collector in the town. And he's there with Jesus, I think blown away. And in the midst of the meal, Luke 19 tells us, verse eight, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and save that which was lost. But listen, don't confuse the order. What do you mean? It's not that Zacchaeus said, I'm gonna make payback. And so Jesus said in response, oh good, okay, then you're saved. No. Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. Salvation is Jesus. And it's because salvation had come into the house of Zacchaeus that then Zacchaeus turns around and says, man, half of all I've got. And I will pay back four times to anyone that I've ripped off. Because salvation has come. Salvation first, grace first. And then grace causes me to respond with great generosity. Why, why does Zacchaeus say he'll pay back four times? Because he's applying, I love it, he's applying the law. Back in verse one, it says payback is four sheep for one. And Zacchaeus is recognizing that he is among the flock of God and he's applying that law to himself. I'll pay back four for one sheep. I rip off one sheep, I'm gonna pay back four times. It's beautiful, that's what grace does. Grace got a hold of Zacchaeus such that he goes right to the law and says, oh, let me restore peace. Jesus chose to come to my house. Jesus saved me. Then I'm gonna have to go out and make peace with all my brothers. It's a beautiful story. Now the seventh commandment 
is you shall not commit adultery. And so we come to that tree in the forest. And here's one of seven specific or several specific uh, applications to that that you'll see throughout the commandments of God. But verse 16 picks up and says, if a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and lies with her, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the dowry for virgins. One way or another, you go get a virgin and you lie with her, she's your responsibility, bro. You pay up. And if father says, you're not good enough for my daughter, you still pay up. And understand with this, like slavery above, the kidnapping, the human trafficking, this in no way condones the behavior of a young man sleeping with a virgin. This isn't God saying, well, it's gonna happen anyway, so we might as well, no, this is to deter this is to say to the young men of Israel, you don't do this because if you do, you might as well have said, will you marry me? Because that's the deal. She becomes your responsibility. God in giving these laws now is, is condemning illicit, adulterous behavior. And at the same time, you know what he's doing? Oh, I love this. He's protecting his daughters. No other law, no other ancient civil code gave such value and protection to women. And I'm gonna be sure and point that out as we go through the Hebrew scriptures. The value God places on women is not some, people talk about, oh, it's patriarchal. You know what, patriarchal is good because the value of women was upheld with God's people. Whereas in all the other pagan cultures, it was demeaned. God lifted up his daughters. Verse 18 reads, you shall not allow a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. <laughs> Pretty self-explanatory on that one. Verse 20, he who sacrifices to any God other than to the Lord alone, Yahweh alone, shall be utterly destroyed. My friends, God has zero tolerance for that which destroys life both now and eternally. And so these three commands are brought together, the occult, bestiality, and paganism. It's not random that he mentions all three together for all three steal life, now and eternally. All three have devastating consequences. Again, the occult, bestiality, and paganism, pagan idolatry. And these three practices note are interwoven in the culture of sexual sin and false spirituality that filled the land of Canaan. All three of these things, and they were together. That the, the animal, sleeping with an animal, the lying with an animal thing is just disgusting, it's sickening, and yet it was pagan practice. And sorcery, pagan practice. And idolatry, pagan practice. And often, all three were practiced together in the adulation or worship of some pagan god. I never would have thought I could say this, but where it comes to sorcery, the idea of lying with an animal and sacrificing to any God other than to Yahweh, this world is in a free fall in that direction. 
this ancient pagan practice is now emerging and humanity will, the Bible tells us, openly exhibit all of these in the coming days. We're already right on the edge. I mean, sorcery has is, is become, the Wiccan faith or religion has become uh, uh, you know, accepted in America as, as one of the many. You can actually have the symbol for, for the Wiccan religion uh, on a tombstone if you want to. And so that's already rolling, obviously. Idolatry and paganism is on the rise in America. Bestiality, we're that close. There are already hints of it emerging in other places, but, but just wait, that's going to be brought in as, hey, if you can do all these other things, why can't you lie with an animal? And it, it's sick and perverted, but it's where the world is headed, and we will see, well, we won't see, thankfully, because God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation, that the world will see as late as the sixth trumpet judgment in the tribulation, Revelation chapter nine, verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, wood, that can neither see nor hear nor walk, so idolatry. They did not repent of their murders or of their sorceries, nor of their sexual immorality, nor of their theft. All of this stuff is described as in full display in that time of tribulation. Verse 21, you shall not wrong a stranger, or a foreigner would be a good translation there, or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And just side note, no matter what your views are politically, as a follower of Jesus Christ, we have a responsibility to the stranger. I'm not talking about violating law. I'm talking about how we care for human beings. We have a responsibility to the foreigner among us, the stranger among us, the one from another place who's among us to actually care about them. And you shall not afflict, verse 22, any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, and he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry. And my anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. This heavy-duty warning to the people of Israel. Why? Psalm 146 verse nine tells us the Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. And you know that these have practical application in Christ. In fact, Yaakov in James chapter one, verse 27 says, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God is this, to visit orphans, and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That is, a stranger. To remain a foreigner. That's, that is the calling on our lives. As Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the world. We are to be strangers in this world. Psalm 119.54, I began with this tonight. Your statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. I'm a pilgrim. I'm not a resident. I'm not settling down. I'm a sojourning stranger, a pilgrim in this world. Oh, Lord, I remember your name in the night and keep your law. And keep your law. Verse 25. 
if you lend money to my people, to the poor among you. You are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you're to return it to him before the sun sets. For, for that's his only covering. It's his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? It shall come about that when he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am gracious. God is saying in all these laws, take care of each other, love each other, don't use and abuse each other. And once again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, Jesus takes the flip side. He says, don't, don't even take your neighbor's cloak as collateral, give him yours. Someone needs a cloak, give it up. Someone needs a shirt, give it up. Someone needs you to go an extra mile, go too. Go out of your way to love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Verse 27, for I am gracious. See, to be godly, to be like God, is to be gracious. It's to do what God would do. And I repeat to you, grace increases love. As was Zacchaeus, salvation came to his house and he could not help but respond. Grace increases love. Or how about, how about when Simon the Pharisee invited Jesus to lunch? You remember the story. And they come into the house and they sit down and they're eating and all of a sudden out of nowhere this sinful woman, Simon knew she was a sinner. How, we, how he knew we don't know, but she comes running in and she's weeping and she's, she's wetting Jesus' feet with her tears and she begins to dry his feet with her hair and then she takes out a, a, a vial of extremely expensive perfume, probably her dowry or her inheritance because that's what it would have been in those days and she begins to pour it on his feet to anoint his feet. And Simon's looking at this whole scene in disgust and Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. <laughs> you know what? If Jesus says to me, Rick, I have something to say to you, I, I, I hope it's good. He says, say it, teacher. Jesus said a moneylender had two debtors and one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to pay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, well, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you've judged correctly. And then turning to the woman, note God and his daughter, watch this. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Can you imagine what she heard when he said that? Don't think about Simon. Think about the woman for a minute. Her sins have been forgiven. As she looks up, tear stains eyes. What? What, my sins? Her sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little, Simon. <laughs> And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What did Jesus just do? 
He restored peace to her heart, to her life. It's remarkable. That is restitution. That is peace restored. Yeshalim, restoring peace to the life of this woman. Gang, listen, we have all been, we were all in way over our heads in massive spiritual debt. And yet God, through Christ Jesus, said, son, said, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Wiped clean, set free, totally and utterly forgiven. So when I come back to the law, what right do I have to hold any debt over any person's head? when God has been so gracious to me? Who am I to, to cause anybody to owe me anything? Well, you did this to me and until you fix it, I'm not gonna. How do I have that right? When God forgave me everything, I must forgive the little things that so often divide our relationships. Now, verse 28, he continues, you shall not curse God nor curse a ruler of your people. He says, you shall not delay the offering from your harvest or your vintage. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall not curse God or curse a ruler of your people. Doesn't matter what his name is. Nebuchadnezzar, don't curse him. Nero, don't curse him. Trump, don't curse him. Inslee, you shall not curse God or a ruler of your people. He makes it very clear. What's the big deal about that? Listen, cursing any authority above me has a tendency to infect all authority above me. If I can't accept the authority that God has placed above me here on this earth, how am I gonna accept his authority? And there becomes this spiritual breakdown. We don't often think about this. Isaiah, the prophet, chapter eight, verse 21, says they will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out when they're hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. That's the danger of cursing upward. That is cursing those in leadership or responsibility or authority over you. As we curse them, guess who's right above them? And there's a spiritual impact to the heart. He says in Isaiah chapter eight, verse 22, then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness because when I curse authority, something messes with my heart. You can't just look at the human authority and say, well, that doesn't count. I love God, but I just, I won't accept that authority. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And if you take that at the physical level, you miss the whole point. It's spiritual. See, my comprehension of those in authority over me, those who lead me, those who are chief above me, as I look to them and respect and honor them spiritually, I am, I am growing in my respect of God. But if I demean them or if I disrespect them or if I curse them, I am undermining my ability spiritually to honor God. 
So it's, it's an incredibly important law and principle. Don't curse God. Don't curse a ruler of your people. And then he, he says this, and I think it's so beautiful. You shall not delay the offering of your harvest and your vintage and the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. And he talks about the offering of the firstborn and for the firstborn and for the firstlings. Remember that before they even left Egypt, God had already commanded this. That is Exodus 13, verse 12. You shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. The first offspring of every beast that you own, the males belong to the Lord. And in verse 13, and every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So the firstborn belongs to God. He's repeating it here. God's a repeater. And so he's repeating again, the firstborn, you gotta bring that to me. It's a first fruits offering. First of the harvest and the grapes. Firstborn sons, firstling of oxen and sheep. And by the way, this, this whole eighth day offering and redemption of the firstborn son in a family was still in play when Jesus was born. We see it with him, Luke 2, 21. When eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So the eighth day, he was brought as the firstborn of Joseph and Mary, though Joseph simply, you know, as a step. <laughs> but firstborn of Mary, by the Spirit of God, he was brought on the eighth day and offered. The redemption price was offered for the child Jesus. The idea here, and the reason why God repeats this and will many times throughout Torah, is to give of your first and your best. And that has spiritual implications. And by the way, I just gotta tell you, that is something this fellowship understands very well. The giving of first and best. And, and I just, I gotta honor you and, and say I, I've been so, I've been so amazed and so pleased to see the faithfulness of your, of your tithes and offerings. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. I don't know what any individual person gives. I just see what the big number is, you know, the, the weekly giving, the monthly giving. I'm aware of it. And it's just been remarkable in this very difficult season, which makes it all the more remarkable to me. God loves when his people give of the first of their produce, of the first of their children, of the first that they have, the first and the best bring to the Lord. Now, someone might say to this, that sounds really cool, but what if it gets harder to give? I mean, it has been a tough season economically. It may not get better anytime soon. I don't know. The president just signed a payroll tax holiday, which should make a difference for a lot of people. But what if you're one of those thinking, maybe I should consider a tithe holiday, just, just till we get back on our feet, just till the season's over. Why don't we hold off on the tithe or on the offering that normally I would give to the Lord? Let, let, let's set this aside until we're in a better shape. Listen, please, I'm gonna say what I have said over and over since we started this fellowship. How and what you give is between you and the Lord. And I don't know what anybody gives, which frees me up just to be able to talk about what the Lord calls for. And so I wanna just ask you this question tonight to consider where your giving is concerned. Who would you rather trust? Would you rather trust yourself with your financial ingenuity? Or would you rather trust God and his grace? That is really where it all comes down as far as our tithes and offerings to the Lord. Who do you want to trust, you or him? 
You can trust him in his grace, and he is gracious. Or you can trust yourself to figure it out. But what if it's hard? What if it's painful to give right now? Listen literally to verse 29. You shall not delay the offering from your harvest and your vintage. Literally translated, you shall not delay your fullness and your tears. Your fullness and your tears. Now tears here is a euphemism, we believe in the Hebrew, for for the, the juice of the grapes. But what a beautiful concept. Man, trust God with your fullness and trust him with your tears. Either way, if you put faith in God, he will care for you. Paul talks about this with Philippi. Philippi was a city up in Macedonia and it was a very impoverished region of Greece at the time of Paul's writings. And in Philippians chapter four, verse 15, he says, you yourselves also know Philippians that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. Paul had one church supporting his mission, Philippi. And he said, for even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. He's like, you guys are amazing. You're faithful. And Philippi was impoverished. Philippi became the standard of giving from poverty in Paul's eyes, in Paul's letter. He was so impressed, he had to tell the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. That's Philippi. That in great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Philippi was a giving church and they gave from hardship. They gave of the fullness and of the tears. And you know, giving from abundance is easy. Giving from deep poverty and tears expresses a richer, deeper faith. Verse 31, you shall be holy to me, the Lord says. You shall be holy men to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh torn to pieces in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. So roadkill is right out. (laughs) Any animal torn by wild beasts, the rabbis have a word, and it's actually the Hebrew word right here in verse 31 for animal torn by wild beasts. And it's it's (laughs) terephah. Terephah. This word terrify, they use any time to talk about an animal that's torn. You are not to eat of that kind of animal. Why? Because the blood can't fully be drained out. So you could be eating blood mixed in with the meat. And you might also inadvertently have contact with the unclean carnivorous animal that tore the animal up. So you got a lamb in the field and a wolf comes in or a lion comes in and tears it to pieces. You are not to eat the leftovers. Just don't go there. Now, to you and to me, you might say, well, I mean, it, it, you clean the meat, just eat it up. You know, not a big deal. The dietary laws are very important in Israel. And God was protecting his people from a lot of illness and disease that they could have otherwise gotten. But there's something more important at play here. All the way over in Leviticus, chapter 17, verse 15, says, when any person eats an animal which dies or is torn by beasts, terephah, Whether he is a native or an alien, he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and remain unclean until evening, and then he will be clean. If you do this, you become immediately unclean. 
So what God's doing here is while protecting his people physically in terms of the food, he's also developing them spiritually in terms of holiness, establishing a pattern, a pattern we see in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45, for I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus, you shall be holy. Why? Because I'm holy. We've already seen the pattern here. Be gracious. Why? Because I'm gracious. Love your neighbor. Why? Because I love your neighbor. Be holy. Why? Because I am holy. Peter picks that up in 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16 as well. Now, a couple more minutes and I'm done. You shall be holy, he says, because I am holy. In other words, hear, learn, keep, do. There is so much here that can help us in our human relationships and in our developing of graciousness and holiness here in the, in the woods of the Decalogue. As we go through tree to tree and see the woods around us and comprehend better. And the last thing I just want to leave you with tonight, chapter 23 begins explaining commandment number nine. So in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the Ninth Commandment, Exodus chapter 20, uh, verse, let me just make sure I'm in the right place there. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. I think in my notes, I may have, it may have said verse nine. So chapter 20, verse 16, it says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And God explains that in these covenant rules here. Verse one, you shall not bear a false report. Don't lie about someone. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside a multitude in order to pervert justice and listen as the Lord spoke these words to Moses as he clarified this whole idea of being a false witness decrees he gives that will protect an innocent man he knew God knew Jesus knew one day this would be completely ignored in his case this is precisely what they did to Jesus Read verse one and two again. They called in false witnesses against him to testify. They joined hands with a wicked man, Pontius Pilate. They ginned up a crowd and they perverted justice. Mark chapter 15, verse 12, Pilate said, then what shall I do with him who you called king of the Jews? And they shouted back, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. And wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them and having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. It's a direct violation of Exodus 23, verses one and two. And Jesus knew it was coming. God established it. Here's how to protect an innocent man, knowing that in the case of his own son, it would provide no protection. So it's as though we've come to a clearing here in the woods We've come to one tree, a wooden cross on which Jesus bore all of our failures to hear and learn and keep 
and do God's law. He knew we couldn't. But you know what Jesus said? Psalm 40, verse eight. He said, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. And so the perfect Jesus kept this perfectly so that by faith in him, we could be forgiven and one day be made perfect. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, for the various and sundry laws, so many of them. But Lord, the richness of these things, they are not lost on us tonight. The application of, of love, the, the restitution between neighbors, the, the even as Lord Jesus just said, going to one who has something against me to restore peace. Now, Father, we need your spirit for this. And we need that constant recognition of your overwhelming grace that we might be reminded to be gracious ourselves, holy ourselves like you are holy. And so I pray, Father, that you will just secure our hearts with these words. Remind us of the call on our lives to love our neighbors ourselves. In this we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.